Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The creation of the modern nation-state of Canada was not the result of a revolution, as with our neighbors to the south, but of a vicious counter-revolution. The process which led to the creation of Canada began with the putting down of the rebellions in what is now Quebec and Ontario in 1837-38, and was completed with the crushing of the Métis resistance in the West. While this movement of the Métis ultimately went down in defeat, it is important for Marxists to understand these events. Joel Bergman, editor of Fightback and La Repose Socialiste, gives this presentation on Louis Riel and the rebellions of the Métis. Well, thank you, Ellen. Uh, yeah, so as Ellen said, I will be presenting on Louis Riel and the Métis, uh, well, I would call it a revolution. So yeah, um, what you learn in history class, or what is generally known about Canada, is that it's a peaceful country. <clears throat> but this is not at all true. Uh, in fact, there are revolutionary events and mass conflict at the heart of the birth of Canada. Uh, and the struggle of the Métis, led by Louis Riel, uh, is at the heart of this uh, process. Now, I've read a lot of books about this, and uh, most describe it as primitives resisting civilization, or a French Catholic thing versus an English, English Protestant thing, or even a racial civil war. Uh, and, and a lot of reactionaries uh, at the time, and even today, would just refer to it as a simple sort of one-off rebellion of a bunch of uh, inst uh, revolutionary instigators. Now, Métis scholars <clears throat> generally refer to this as a, as a resistance, which, while closer to the truth, uh, I think misses uh, the general process as well. Uh, and what was actually happening was a mass national democratic revolution, which attempted to complete uh, what uh, uh, was not able to be achieved by the failed revolutions of 1837 and 38. Uh, this was led by the Métis uh, petty bourgeoisie, uh, it was, and it was supported by the Métis proletariat. And they were rising up against the colonial power, uh, defended by a reactionary bloc of the mercantile bourgeoisie, the new rising industrial bourgeoisie, uh, and the clergy. Um, so our story starts with the Métis, so I'm going to go through a bit of the history of what the Métis what the Métis are. Uh, well, the word Métis literally means mixed. Uh, it's actually the same word used in Latin America, mestizo, uh, which is generally used to describe someone who is of European or indigenous uh, descent. Uh, however, the, the Métis in Canada are actually a bit more than this. Uh, by the early 19th century, the Métis were calling themselves uh, the new nation, la nouvelle nation. They had their own flag, uh, and the last battle that was fought in 1885 was known as uh, the Guerre Nationale, the National War. Uh, so yeah, the Métis were a bit more than a simple group or ethnic group within society, but a proper nation all on its own. But how did this uh, Métis nation uh, come into being? Uh, well, the development of the Métis is intimately connected with the development of fur trade. Um, for the colonial powers that were vying for dominance in the fur trade, uh, forging relations with indigenous peoples was of prime importance. 
Uh, while there was at first a limited number of what were known as coureurs de bois or uh, woodsmen or voyageurs, uh, this eventually rose to thousands. Uh, and these were generally men that would go, would mostly Frenchmen, but not only Frenchmen, would, would go to develop uh, relations with indigenous people. Uh, they would, and in order to do this, they would, they would quite often marry indigenous women. Um, and, and actually, this was what was known as uh, marriage according to the custom of the country. It was mariage à la façon du pays which was basically the only way to develop a trade relationship. So the origins of the Métis comes from this process. So, uh, yeah, fast forward to the 18th century, there were thousands of uh, voyageurs, uh, of Métis voyageurs, and, and capitalism in Canada uh, at the time was very underdeveloped, actually. Um, through the colonial system, the British kept the territory intentionally underdeveloped. Uh, there was a mercantile bourgeoisie connected to the Hudson Bay Company, uh, w which extracted resources for export back to Britain. In turn, uh, commodities generally could only be bought from Britain. So you had a situation where the development of the productive forces um, was increasingly uh, hemmed in by uh, British colonialism. Uh, this is just like it had been before the American Revolution, for example. Uh, so this process led to the petty bourgeoisie in what was known as Upper and Lower Canada, that's Quebec and Ontario, uh, rebelling, trying to establish a democratic republic and free trade. Yeah, and this is what we know as the Upper and Lower Canada rebellions of 1837-38. Uh, these rebellions failed, uh, they were crushed, um, and the, there was a similar process that took place in the Northwest. Uh, which was a bit uh, delayed uh, because the population was much smaller and the economy was less developed. Uh, but the same process happened nonetheless, although in a bit of a distorted manner. Uh, and the main motor force of this protest in the process in the Northwest was the Métis, as they played the main productive role as uh, hunters and fur traders. <clears throat> so uh, by 1780, 1790, uh, the beavers had around the Great Lakes had generally been... Uh, trapped out. They were eliminated. Uh, so there was a push into the northwest uh, in search of furs. Uh, the main area was known as Red River, uh, which became the biggest city uh, west of Ontario for a period of time. Uh, but this was actually a, a big area. It was the southern part of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, northwestern corner of Minnesota, and a large part of North Dakota. Uh, and so thousands of voyageurs uh, moved to this area uh, and uh, they were kind of caught in the middle of a trade dispute uh, between the Hudson Bay Company, that was the dominant uh, monopoly, and the, this new company called the Northwest Company, uh, which was founded in 1789. And it's really this process in which you start to see uh, the Métis become a distinct social group apart from both indigenous peoples and Europeans. Uh, so the development of a nation uh, is a nationality, is a long period of development uh, through common economic relations. Uh, and on top of that, you have language, culture, uh, other institutions that develop. But this is rarely a peaceful, gradual venture, <clears throat> and the process commonly uh, interrupted or perforated by a series of violent, bloody events that f force people together. Uh, and in this regard, the, the development of the Métis is no different. Uh, the first major event of this type uh, was what is known as the Victory at Frog Plain uh, in 1816. Uh, it's known as the Victory to the Métis, but by reactionaries at the time it was known as the Massacre. 
Um, that's always the case with oppressed people when they fight back and win. Uh, so basically what happened is the governor uh, tried to ban the Métis from trading uh, pemmican, uh, which was a traditional food, uh, with the Northwest Company. Uh, so the gov governor Semple uh, approached a Métis party uh, that was led by a man named Cuthbert Grant, who were, who were bringing uh, 1,800 pounds of pemmican to a Northwest Company post. Uh, the, the result of this was 21 Hudson Bay Company men dead, including Semple and only one Métis dead. Now, now the result of this process was the colonial powers, uh, the Britain, starting to realize that they couldn't force things on the Métis uh, because uh, any significant base of troops was really far away and the Métis were uh, the majority of the population and they were armed. Um, so this becomes a recurring theme that the Hudson Bay Company tries to enforce something, uh, the Métis resist, the Métis win. And while there wasn't a clear ideology to the movement in the early stage. Uh, this was by and large a petty, what we would describe as a petty bourgeois movement of traders fighting for free trade against a colonial power. Uh, and this was a key turning point in the development of the Métis. Um, almost more importantly though, the, the, the result of this conflict was the two companies were forced to merge. Uh, and this saw more than 1,200 voyagers lose their jobs. And now these people generally, these mostly men, generally had indigenous wife, wives, and they stayed in the area. And the population uh, of the Red River area doubled from 1832 to 1840, going up to around 5,000. Uh, now the economic basis of this expanded population was, uh, was not the beaver fur trade, it was the buffalo hunt, um, which started to become a massive uh, operation. It's actually the first major industry in Western Canada. Uh, this, these hunts would involve uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals, uh, and they would quite often come back with a million pounds of buffalo meat from over 10,000 buffalo. Um, but in this situation, uh, the accumulation of capital was actually was virtually impossible uh, because there was only one place you could trade your meat or your furs or whatever, the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, and so demand stayed relatively stable in spite of the increased supply. Um, as well, the, the buffalo hunt internally was quite communal and egalitarian in the early days. Um, if you think about it, uh, famine was quite common <laughs> and you had to share. Uh, it was a matter of survival. Uh, uh, so the Métis developed the laws of the hunt uh, and sharing of buffalo uh, killed was uh, part of that. Um, this all changed uh, in 1844. Uh, the American fur market opened up with a trading post in Pembina just south of the border. Uh, so now the Métis traders could trade and could accumulate capital and come into their own. Uh, in Marxist terms, these petty bourgeois layers could now accumulate capital and become bourgeois. Um, however, in, in order to do this, they first had to break the Hudson Bay Company monopoly. So the Hudson Bay Company tried to stop the Métis from trading with the Americans. Uh, but there was another process that was happening at the same time, a political process, um, that after the, the rebellions of 1837-38 in Ontario and Quebec, um, uh, Red River was uh, full of talk of freedom, equality, and these Republican ideas. Um, especially the ideas of the Patriots in Lower Canada or Quebec uh, resonated with the Métis. Uh, uh, so much so that it was quite common for Métis to fly the Patriot flag and sing Patriot songs. 
And uh, Louis Riel's father, uh, Jean-Louis, was actually an ardent supporter of Papineau, one of the principal leaders of the Lower Canada Rebellion. He was actually in Lower Canada during the movement and this had a, of 1837, and this had a big impact on his political views. So this political process collided with the new economic process opened up with the American market. Um, and there was a series of events which culminated in another pivotal event, uh, the trial of Pierre-Guillaume Sayer. Uh, Sayer and three other Métis traders were arrested by the, uh, the Council of Assiniboia, the governing council, uh, for fur trafficking in 1849. Jean-Louis Riel uh, did a rousing speech and uh, led 400 armed Métis to surround the courthouse. <clears throat> the judge was actually one of the authors of the Durham Report, which recommended uh, the assimilation of the French, uh, complete reactionary. Uh, the entire jury uh, and the prosecutor were all Hudson Bay Company employees. And the trial was basically a trial on the Hudson Bay Company monopoly. Now, they found Sire guilty, uh, but under pressure decided not to charge him. Uh, the, and when this was announced, the crowds outside burst into chants of uh, le commerce est libre, free trade, uh, long live liberty. Uh, so you see now that the movement is starting to have a clear political ideology to it, which is generally Republican, sort of bourgeois democratic demands for free trade and whatnot. However, at this point, the, 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 the British <clears throat> and the colonizers, the Hudson Bay Company, had started to realize something, uh, especially after the American Revolution that they should give some concessions, otherwise they face revolution. As well, as I mentioned, in the, in the Northwest, uh, the Métis were the, were the majority of the population uh, and, and the indigenous as well, and they were generally armed. Uh, so it was also very difficult to impose anything on. Uh, so this dynamic lasted right up until the first uh, rebellion in 69-70. Um, so, as I mentioned, while 1837-38, the rebellions went down in a bloody defeat, uh, the situation forced the British to make reforms. Uh, they uh, gave some autonomy. Uh, they formed confederation in 1867 with four provinces. Uh, however, these reforms were always incomplete and are still incomplete to this day. Uh, for example, the Act of the Union in 1841, uh, Canada did not become a democratic republic. Uh, and it enshrined the oppression of the Francophones. Um, so Canada was not the product of a mass democratic revolution, but actually a counter-revolution from above, and, a, and calculated reforms to head off revolution. And so now we, Canada still technically has a queen uh, and an unelected Senate. So this movement of the Métis that I would call a revolution uh, was actually sort of a continuation of this process, an attempt to complete it. However, the new industrial and financial bourgeoisie in the East, the Canadian bourgeoisie, uh, were eyeing the West with greedy eyes. Uh, they had no interest in democracy. Uh, so there was a big conflict that was going to happen. As uh, Métis Marxist uh, Howard Adams explains, uh, the trouble was the conflict between two different economic systems. The old economic system represented by the Hudson Bay Company and the new industrial system. The clash between the, these two systems fueled the hostilities in 69-70 in the Northwest, which resulted in Rupert's Land uh, being brought under the constitutional authority of the government in Ottawa, uh, which was the seat of the industrial empire. 
Uh, and for this to happen, uh, the Métis, their land rights, their way of life had to be crushed for the, for the capitalists. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> it's kind of a historical irony that they, they were crushing a democratic, bourgeois, republican revolution. Uh, but this is a process that you see all over the, all over the globe where the capitalists uh, do a deal with, with, the, with the reaction and they don't want a democratic revolution. Uh, so in 1868, negotiations began for the sale of the Northwest to the new Con Canadian Confederation. Uh, of course, neither Canada or Britain asked the population of the Northwest, uh, which was majority First Nations and Métis. And the new Canadian bourgeoisie uh, wanted the land, and they hoped that they could just solve this question with the stroke of a pen. Uh, and the Métis heroically interrupted these plans, uh, the plans of these great powers. Uh, so politically, this reflected itself in the, what was known as the Canada First Movement. Uh, might remind you of something? Uh, this, was, uh, this movement was officially founded in 1868. Uh, eventually this became the Canadian Party. And this, this was a completely reactionary nationalist outfit which promoted Brit British Protestantism and the assimilation of the French Catholics. And it, it wasn't a small movement. Uh, the Ontario Premier, Edward Blake, was a member. The Conservative Minister, Federal Minister of Public Works, was also a member. Uh, William McDougall uh, was a member. You will hear about him again. <clears throat> In Red River, uh, the main uh, Canada first person was a guy named John Christian Schultz. He was a shady businessman and a, spec and a land speculator. He uh, bought, yeah, he bought the, the only paper in the region, known as the Norwester, and turned it into a <clears throat> pro-Canadian paper. Uh, and then the Canadian Party speculators used this uh, to push for the annexation of Rupert, Rupert's Land to Canada, so they could purchase plots of land, which would only increase in value once mass settlement began. Uh, from the sounds of it, uh, the North Norwester at the time would give would have given Fox News a run for their money. Sort of sensationalist uh, media. Uh, so yeah, we can see actually the roots of uh, racism against indigenous peoples here. Uh, the bourgeois interests behind that uh, to take the land. Uh, in June 1869, Canada revealed its plans for governance in the Northwest. Uh, it was not at all surprising. Canada basically would have a colony in the Northwest with a lieutenant governor and council appointed from Ottawa. Uh, and there was absolutely no protection for Métis or First Nations uh, land rights. Uh, the Canadian party was uh, very happy. They claimed that they would, and they were jubilant, they were claiming they would take up arms, quote, take up arms and drive out the half-breeds. Yeah. Now, you couldn't claim that the Canadian party was hiding their agenda. They were open about it. They also said that the Métis would be all driven back from the river and their land given to others. Uh, now, uh, John A. Macdonald was a little bit more subtle. Uh, he said the plan was to, uh, quote, keep those wild people quiet. In another year, the present residents will, altogether, will be altogether swamped by the influx of strangers who will go in with the idea of becoming industrious and peaceable settlers. Yeah, so it was a colonization plan. Um, and there's, there's absolutely no way with the history of the Métis that they were going to sit back and let this happen. Uh, and here's where, what I would say, the revolution begins. 
in response to this, there were mass meetings, regular mass meetings were a regular occurrence, uh, reviving the best democratic traditions of the Métis. And here's where we see the young, the 24-year-old Louis Riel enters the scene of history. Uh, now, technically, the land was supposed to be transferred to Canada by December 1st, 1869. But the, the, the speculators couldn't wait. And they had in July 1869, they already had surveyors surveying uh, and placing stakes on Métis land. Uh, and uh, Riel and other leaders led patrols to stop and eject the surveyors. Uh, so the new governor was, was set to arrive. It was William McDougall, who was a Canada First member, the Minister of Public Works. Uh, and, and the rumor was that uh, the Métis heard that there was 350 rifles and 10,000 rounds of ammunition also on their way. So in response, the Métis revolutionaries started to radicalize and organize more seriously. So uh, John Bruce, who was a carpenter, and Louis Riel, who, who had studied law, basically they created the National Committee for the Red River Métis. Uh, they also constructed what was known as La Barrière, which was a barrier uh, <laughs> that across the major, a major road entering Red River to block people coming in and out. They started searching people coming in and out, confiscating weapons. Uh, when <clears throat> word got out that Riel was m mobilizing a, a resistance, uh, Métis from all over the Northwest uh, flocked to Red River to join the movement. Um, there was Métis trip, what were they? They were known as trip men. There was about a thousand of them. They, they worked on the HBC, the Hudson Bay Company barges. Uh, they fled to, a lot of them came as far as Northwest Saskatchewan to come join the movement. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, Métis uh, in what, we what they described as winter camps where they would, they would spend the time in the winter uh, to be closer to the buffalo. Um, and uh, Riel sent uh, messengers to these camps to tell them to come ready to fight uh, in the spring of 1870. Uh, with the official transfer approaching, the go new governor arriving, events uh, evolved very quickly. Uh, MacDougall, uh, the only way for them to get to Red River was through the United States, and he arrived at Pembina on October 30th. Uh, and this is where uh, Ambroise uh, Lepin uh, uh, confronts MacDougall with a group of Métis and tells him to leave. Uh, Ambo uh, uh, MacDougall asks, who sent you? Uh, and uh, Lepin says, the government. Uh, MacDougall asks, what government? And Lepin answers, the government we made. Uh, McDougall is forced, he has, he's, he, he sees he's outnumbered, he's forced to flee south of the border. Uh, and everyone was making fun of him. He's the king without a kingdom, basically. There's even a Métis song about it uh, by uh, Pierre Falcon, which is pretty funny. So yeah, following this, uh, you see that there's a kind of classic dance between revolution headed by Riel and counter-revolution headed up by Schultz and the Canadian Party. So there, there were rumors that the Canadian Party was planning on seizing Fort Garry, uh, which was the administrative capital of the settlement uh, where the Council of Assiniboia met. Um, so, the, so the Métis sent 120 men, and they seized Fort Garry from the governor, who is relatively hopeless, actually. And so, and so with this bold move, the Métis are now the power in the region. Uh, but the, the, the battle, the, the war was far from over. Um, <clears throat> Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dennis uh, returned with author authorization from McDougall to raise an army to put down uh, the resistors. So uh, the, the, the Métis revolutionaries seize the newspapers. Uh, they publish a list of rights, which is distributed all over the community. Uh, 
Uh, to summarize this list of rights, they basically stated that they were actually prepared to accept annexation to Canada as long as they were not stripped of their property, denied Catholic religious rights or French language rights. Uh, in hindsight, this was actually quite naive. Um, but with this publication of the list of rights, the support for the Canadian party and, uh, and the counter-revolutionary forces uh, evaporated almost completely. And the lieutenant, lieutenant colonel is flees on December 11th uh, back to Ontario. Uh, Schultz uh, is forced to surrender to Riel, uh, and 45 men, including Schultz, are taken prisoner in Fort Garry. Uh, and uh, this is when Riel proclaims a new provisional government uh, and they, at the end of Hudson Bay Company control over the region. Now, now, right from the beginning, the Canadian government and the reactionaries like Schultz were attempting uh, uh, the age-old tactic of divide and rule. So the obvious division was to play off the French Catholics and English Protestants. Uh, half of, about half of the Métis were French Catholics and half were English Protestants. Yeah, so they, they, they sent the surveyors only on the French land. Uh, they tried to raise troops amongst the English Métis the, and the Scottish and the Irish, but they have very little success in this regard. And actually, some of their biggest supporters are, are uh, amongst the uh, French Métis rich fur traders. Um, and actually, uh, Colonel, the Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Denis that I'm, Dennis that I mentioned, he, he tried to raise a force of Scottish and Irish in Pembina. Uh, they refused. They said that they actually agreed largely with the Métis. So if you think about it, there's quite a good situation uh, for the Métis revolutionaries. They succeed in uniting the French and English Métis, and in November the movement be they begin a movement of uh, democratic conventions with delegates from the English, the French, and even the uh, Ojibwa. Uh, the, the first list of, of rights actually is, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't even mention Métis. They, they're not, it's, it's not necessarily a Métis movement. It was representing all of the people. In uh, January 1870, there's a mass assembly in Fort Garry, uh, which is quite impressive. Apparently, it, was out, it had to be outside because they didn't have a big enough building, and it was about 1,000 people in, in Manitoba in mid-January. Um, a representative of the Canadian government was there, Donald Smith, uh, and he tries to uh, isolate Riel to stop him from speaking. Um, uh, but he loses all support, and uh, the revolutionaries win the, the debate. So how did all of this, this very good situation that I described, result in defeat uh, without actually a battle and Riel fleeing to the United States? So I'd say that there was two elements. Uh, there was um, the leadership, um, but that doesn't explain everything. Um, there was also the, there was internal problems in the, in, in the Métis community. So uh, before the 1850s, there was very little class differentiation in the Métis community. However, with the advent of free trade uh, and, and the ability to accumulate capital, uh, there was a, young, a layer of Métis traders that basically became bourgeois. Um, and uh, there was more and more, actually, Métis uh, wage laborers, proletarians, actually, too. And whilst the preparation of things like pemmican and the buffalo ropes... Uh, generally was carried out within the Métis family in the early days. This all started to change in the 1860s. Yeah, there's a reorganization of labor. <clears throat> For example, Métis trader Moise Goulet hired many workers to tan buffalo robes for him. Uh, his, according to his son, I suppose if he lived in our times, he wouldn't have been called a businessman, more likely a vile capitalist. Surprise, surprise, Moise Goulet opposes Riel. 
The most clear example uh, was probably Pascal Brelan, who was known as the king of the traders. Uh, he was the largest, also the largest landowner in the Saint Francois Xavier area of Red River, uh, and he was appointed. He was on the council of Assiniboia. He had been appointed to it. Now there was a layer of these people, and they, while they generally had some concerns about confederation, they had actually some of them were pushing for it, and they had a lot to gain economically with access to new markets in the east. These men, these bourgeois layers, they were concerned of confeder about confederation, uh, but some of them were, were pushing for confederation because they had a lot to gain economically with access to new markets in the east. Um, so as is often the case in, in national liberation struggles, uh, the bourgeois elements of the oppressed nationality prove incapable of leading the movement and end up faltering and siding with the oppressor. Um, so this, this bourgeois layer was not at all eager to revive the revolutionary movement and take up arms. Um, and a significant, by this time, a significant section of the Métis population either worked for them or they worked for the Hudson Bay Company, shipping their furs and other cargo. Um, yeah, so some of these elements openly opposed Riel. Some sort of supported him, but didn't really support. Um, there was even a group around William Dees, a rich uh, trader that tried to dismantle uh, la, the barrier. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, Pascal Brelan and, and Solomon Hamelin, they were rich traders, they fled Red River uh, in the fall of 1869 taking their families and supporters and servants with them. Uh, and as the movement was forced to take more radical measures, such as seizing Hudson Bay Company property, um, many of these people moved into open opposition. Uh, meanwhile, the majority of Riel's supporters were, were the trip men um, who worked on the Hudson Bay Company boats and were enthusiastic about seizing Hudson Bay Company property. Um, also, most of the trip men uh, did not have title to land recognized by the Hudson Bay Company, while the rich traders like Dees, Brelan, uh, had title, um, which Canada was saying they would respect. Um, another event was at one of the winter, the biggest winter camps in Coapel, yeah, with over a thousand people in April 1870. They, they wanted to go to Red River to help Riel, but uh, Brelan and Hamelin, uh, the wealthy traders, uh, convinced them not to. Uh, so as we see, just like 1837-38, the bourgeois layers had developed contradictory interests with regards to the movement. Um, the other element I mentioned, which was about, which led to the defeat, was the question of leadership. So while uh, leaders like Riel uh, had a lot of ability and the majority looked to him, um, he, he, he was quite naive, and you can see this uh, in the negotiations. So they sent delegates to negotiate with the Canadian government. Um, the government had no intention of, of negotiating in good faith, but was just putting on a farce in preparation, preparing a military behind the scenes, uh, which seems to be the way that the Canadian state deals with things today. So uh, at the time, they, they promised, uh, in what became the Manitoba Act, uh, they promised 1.4 million acres for Métis and their children. But this promise wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Uh, because they, they had no intention of honoring it. But, but Riel actually believed that this. Um, uh, they, they, they thought they were legally negotiating in good faith. So in spite of the fact that they had mass support and most people were, were not excited about being annexed to Canada, um, Riel uh, 
published the the colonel who had was bringing the troops published his welcome letters in Red River, um, and uh, and Dumont Gabriel Dumont uh, who was a famous uh, leader of the Métis he said he could raise an army of 500 Métis warriors, uh, but Riel was against this and others as well. Uh, Nick Chatelain who was a Métis a respected Métis trader actually convinced the Ojibwa not to attack the incoming force. And, and Riel sent most of his men home. Um, he had mass meetings with uh, Métis groups saying not to wear his arms and go home. Um, and by the time he realized what was going on, it was not a governor coming, it was an army to arrest you and crush you. Um, and according to a letter written in the Montreal Gazette at the time uh, by one of the officers uh, in the invading force, um, he says, a uh, hundred determined men with a couple of guns uh, could not only have over and over again sent our boats to the bottom, uh, but could have kept the whole detachment at bay and in fact caused it to return. Uh, but for Riel's command of his men, uh, for his strong personal influence and predilection for Canada and her institutions, the Canadian expeditionary force would certainly have never reached Fort Garry this year. Uh, so this is a very naive uh, naivety of weakness that invites aggression. Um, and so what followed was a reign of terror in Red River. So the Canadian government unleashed a reign of terror against anyone who was suspected of being a friend of Riel. They needed to send a message, do not challenge our rule. Uh, Schultz held meetings in Ontario in the Orange Lodges. Uh, they were demanding the lynching of Riel. Um, yeah, they turned this guy Thomas Scott uh, into a saint. Now, I intentionally didn't speak about Scott very much. Uh, because it's a lot of it's a whole lot about nothing. Uh, Scott was killed uh, by firing squad. Um, uh, he was on he was put on trial for trying to assassinate Louis Riel, um, and he had killed someone, <clears throat> and that was common punishment at the time. It was basically a revolutionary tribunal that that found him guilty. Uh, but the 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 reactionary the Protestant reactionaries used this, and they 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 turned Scott, who was a total horrible person, into a saint. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Canadian Expeditionary Force arrived in August 24th, 1870, and they, for the next two and a half years, raped, pillaged, plundered Red River. And Riel and the other leaders fled to the U.S. Um, yeah, so as I said, one of the big questions was the leadership. There were about t 10 to 12,000 people in Red River. About 8,000 were French and English Métis. Thousands of young men, uh, armed, good with a gun. <laughs> Um, and with a long tradition of resistance. Um, in addition, the, the Cree, the Ojibwa had similar concerns. Uh, even the Scottish and Irish settlers uh, had similar concerns. Uh, but they generally failed to unite with these elements. Or, or even worse, <clears throat> in 1871, uh, the Fenians, which was an Irish revolutionary group, uh, targeted British targets in Canada. Uh, and they took Fort B Pembina on October 6th, 1871. Uh, this was led by actually one of Riel's allies, O'Donoghue, uh, who, who was a member of the provisional government, who had been. Uh, but Riel united with the Canadian government uh, and even raised Métis um, company regiments to, to help put down the Fenians. So the governor at the time said, If the Métis had taken a different course, I do not believe the province would now be in our possession. So Riel and some of the others were kind of leading a struggle that they were unprepared to lead to the end. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and the fallout was horrible. 
like I said, a brutal reign of terror. There was a arrest warrant for Riel and others. Uh, Riel was actually uh, still popular. He was elected to the parliament three times in 1873 and 1874, and he was never allowed to sit in the parliament. The promises of land were never kept, <clears throat> and in typical Canadian fa fashion, there was a ridiculous amount of bureaucracy uh, so indigenous people and Métis couldn't get land or had it stolen from them. Um, so there was mass uh, emigration. People fled Red River. And there was immigration from of Protestant Anglophones from Ontario who stole the land uh, <clears throat> and uh, changed it, the system to be based on commercial agriculture. So yeah, I'm going to run out of time. I still have to talk about the 1885 uh, movement. Um, yeah, so about 4,000 Métis fled to southern Saskatchewan. Uh, MacDonald was pushing, the Prime Minister was pushing a colonization plan, basically promising 10 million acres to big colonization companies. Uh, with the railway being built, this was a dream for the speculators, because the value of the land would only go up. So a lot of the Métis thought that they had gotten away, they had fled to Saskatchewan. But there is no escaping <laughs> capitalism. Uh, and the Métis started fighting back as their land was being stolen once again. And uh, Gabriel Dumont is leading the struggle. And in alliance with the, the Farmers' Union, who also had similar concerns, they invite Riel back. Um, and Riel is, is, comes to Sisk southern Saskatchewan. He's speaking to mass crowds. Um, but Riel's counseling petitions and peaceful means. But everyone knew the history. Um, they, the, the Canadian government was not so much afraid of Riel himself. Uh, they were afraid of the force behind him, the, the memory of the struggle. And, and the greatest fear was that the Métis would unite uh, with the First Nations, who were basically starving at the time on their lands. Um, but events again uh, uh, evolve relatively quickly. Uh, in 1885, in March, they vote to take up arms if necessary. They publish another Bill of Rights, which they call the Revolutionary Bill of Rights, which, which wasn't all that revolutionary, but it shows the mood at the time. Um, yeah, they're asked for legislatures in Alberta and Saskatchewan and the right to possess farms and other demands. But the Canadian Canada uh, was not prepared to concede anything. They were in the process of building the nation state, which was absolutely essential for the, for the Canadian bourgeoisie. Um, so these basic democratic demands uh, could only be won through revolutionary action. Uh, which, again, as the movement radicalizes, the Métis, the rich Métis bourgeois... Uh, uh, move into the other into the side of reaction. A good example is Jean Jean Baptiste Letendre, uh, who was a Métis leader and was deeply involved in the debates at the time. Uh, but when the movement became more militant in the spring of 1885, he disassociated himself from the revolutionaries, as he called them. So uh, in March 18th, uh, the H the Hudson Bay Company chief factor Lawrence Clark. Hudson Bay Company administrator in the region. Uh, he told the Métis that their, their petitions, the answer would be bullets. Uh, he also said that troops were coming to arrest Driel and Dumont. Uh, so a very similar process happens once again. Uh, a, a provisional government is formed. Uh, Riel is named uh, president. And uh, Dumont is installed as their military commander. Uh, there are basically three. This one actually goes to battle. But the conditions are much worse this time. They can transport the troops on the railway, <clears throat> and the, the Métis are even less united. Um, that being said, uh, the first two battles, you could say, were Métis victories. Uh, the Battle of Duck Lake and the Battle of uh, Fish Creek. 
where the, the Battle of Duck Lake, the Mounties are forced to retreat, faced with a superior Métis force. Um, and the Battle of Fish Creek, 900 uh, troops and militia face just 200 Métis, um, uh, led by Dumont. And uh, Middleton, the general, is forced to retreat. <clears throat> yeah, and the, the, the final battle, the Battle of Batoche on May 9th, uh, the, 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 the Métis uh, are basically surrounded and outnumbered. <clears throat> and uh, in three days, they're overrun and they're, uh, they're forced to flee again. Uh, three days after this, in May 15th, Riel uh, turns himself in. And a process that we know all too well, a jury of six white Anglo-Protestant men uh, and a judge appointed by MacDonald find Riel guilty of treason. There's petitions asking them to, uh, to commute the sentence, the death sentence, to not kill him. With the petitions had tens of thousands of signatures from all over the country. And they could have uh, commuted the sentence, um, but they, this was clearly political. They had to send a clear message. And this is where John A. MacDonald, his famous quote, he says, he shall hang though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor. Um, so yeah, Riel was hanged on November 16th, 1885. Um, but he was a hero for many. There was even 50,000 people marched in Montreal. Uh, yeah, so to, to summarize, uh, what was the Métis resistance? Well, well we, I had already explained uh, that the 1837-38 revolution was kind of a weak echo of the American Revolution. That uh, at the time, uh, the, the, the contradiction between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat was already too developed in 1837-38. So the bourgeoisie was scared. Uh, so this threw the bourgeoisie into the camp of reaction at the time. And we see exactly the same thing uh, in, with the Métis uh, uh, movement. So this was basically a bourgeois democratic revolution, which the bourgeoisie, both the Canadian bourgeoisie and the Métis bourgeoisie, conspired to put down. Um, the most enthusiastic supporters were proletarian, uh, but they weren't a significant enough force at the time to lead a, to a socialist revolution. So this is why we have this sort of contradictory uh, half-movement uh, which kind of refuses to fight to the finish. Uh, and even when it does, it does sort of hopelessly when it's almost too late. Um, yeah, so today, I'll just wrap up here. Uh, in, in recent polls, the vast majority of Canadians uh, consider don't consider Riel a traitor uh, and, and, and think that he should be exonerated. Uh, however, as Riel uh, essentially died because he was uh, a bit naive and tricked, uh, we shouldn't fall for tokenistic gestures on this matter. Uh, to quote uh, former president of the Métis National Council, uh, Gerald Moray, uh, Riel and many Métis people fought and died for a cause. The Métis are still a landless people in Canada. To put in place the justice and vision we're fighting for, we don't want symbolic gestures. So while the, the proletariat at the time, the Métis proletariat, was too small and underdeveloped to lead the struggle, uh, today the working class is the crushing majority of the population. <clears throat> and Canadian capitalism is not being born, it's, it's in, in the process of dying, uh, and we need to help it die. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism 
in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.